Tanse. That's hello in Cree. Welcome to Catching Frogs. I'm Wendy Stewart. Thanks for joining me today. I am grateful to the Canada Council for the Arts for their support of this project on my journey to reconnect with my Cree and Métis roots and to revisit the history of Canada through the lens of Indigenous women and their significant contribution. None of this would have been possible had it not been for the tireless commitment of Donna Sutherland, my second cousin, and the 10 years of her dedicated research. We begin. Let's look more closely at the book Women of Red River, written by William James Healy, first published in 1923. The book opens with a title page stating, Women of Red River being a book written from the recollections of women surviving from the Red River era by W.J. Healy, Provincial Librarian of Manitoba, a tribute to the women of an earlier day. Healy wrote from conversations with women alive from the early settlement period at Red River. Some of his comments stuck with me and not in a good way. Healy was a journalist and historian. He was associate editor of the Winnipeg Free Press for 19 years, beginning in 1899. He was the second provincial librarian of Manitoba and archivist when the idea of archives was relatively new, appointed in 1920 until 1937. In his first annual report as the provincial librarian, Healy stated, quote, All who have occasion to make extended use of the resources of the library, since it has been established in its present commodious quarters, testify to its completeness as library of record and to the value of its collections of books and other material bearing on the history of Western Canada, end quote. The word completeness is what strikes me regarding the history of Western Canada. Was this complete history recorded at all from the perspective of Indigenous people, of what Europeans found when they came? Did these newcomers try to learn from the peoples who had survived for thousands of years in the uncompromising, harsh environment of the North? Or did these writers of history consider their view the only perspective? Let me repeat the title, Women of Red River. Think about it for a moment. The book opens with the line, The First White Woman in the West. That statement is remarkable, as though only white women were worthy of mention. No European women resided on the bay during the 18th century. When the Hudson Bay Company was formed in 1670, women were encouraged to accompany their husbands to bayside posts, but significant unrest and confrontation existed between the British and the French, making life perilous. In the fall of 1683, Henry Sargent was the new governor of the Hudson's Bay Company. He and his nameless wife, along with a companion, a maid and a child, also nameless, traveled with Governor Sargent aboard the Diligence, arriving on the shores of James Bay. The French attacked, imprisoned Henry and his nameless companions. After his release, Sargent was ordered back to England where he was charged with cowardice, and the Hudson's Bay Company forbid European women on all ships sailing to the bay after that. The rule for no fraternization with Indigenous women was emphatically stated, though few servants of the Hudson's Bay Company paid any heed. 
Donna read correspondence written by company superiors of their disapproving and hostile opinion of any unions with Cree women. They spoke with ignorant disregard for Indigenous women and advised the company servants not to feel any affection for the children that would result from the relations with these women. Not might result, but would result. The women and children were nothing more than a financial burden to the company, labeling them half-breeds as if their genetics made them less than human. The letters are in the Hudson's Bay Company archives. Again, the opening line, the first white woman. Here was an opportunity for Healy in his celebration of the idea of completeness in the record of history to write of Indigenous and Métis women who provided for the survival of HBC men, provided for their safety and security, taught them the skills needed to live in this unforgiving land, and gave them a sense of family and home while providing for their well-being, many of whom then resided and lived out their lives in the Red River Colony. Indigenous women were noted in most journals and letters as half-breed, Indian, nameless. This term half-breed signifies people are made up of fractions, not a whole. Nahaway raised the question of layers. We are all layered. We aren't cut into neat and tidy pieces of which genes came together to create us. We are layered, every single one of us. Side note, if you want to hear a good commentary on British colonization, find your way to Trevor Noah's stand-up entitled Afraid of the Dark, available on Netflix. It is intelligent and simple and funny. So back to Women of Red River. A young woman disguised as a man signed on with the Hudson's Bay Company in 1806. Her name was Isabel Gunn, her assumed name John Fubister. She worked alongside other HBC servants without detection, doing equal work, until she gave birth to a son at the post at Pembina on December 29, 1807. One person was aware of Isabel's gun's true identity. She was demoted to washerwoman, which she had no taste for. She was discharged in September of 1809 at the end of her contract. European women were not allowed at company posts and she was sent back to Orkney with her child. The second white woman was Marie-Anne Lagemonnière, who gave birth to a child eight days after the birth of Gunn's son just mentioned. Marie-Anne gave birth to a daughter on January 6, 1808, near the banks of the Pembina River. This girl grew up to be the mother of Louis Riel. Healy wrote in his book that Marie-Anne was the only white woman on the northern half of this continent, west of Lake Huron, until the summer of 1812. Again, he is fixated on white women as if they were Eve herself. Women have been here as long as men. Healy makes another point that sticks with me. Quote, the bloodshed and savage devastation of the fur trade warfare destroyed their first attempts at settlement, and brought death to some and extreme suffering to the survivors. And after the fur trade warfare was elided, the settlers had to struggle against disasters which more than once threatened the destruction of the settlement. Again and again what seemed a lost cause on the banks of the Red River was saved by the unrecorded fortitude of men and women whose hearts were strong to endure against disaster the staunchness of the men and the sustaining courage 
and devotion of the women, wait for it, preserved British influence in the West and helped to create a nation. The words preserved British influence in the West. The British system was founded on a social class structure, a monarchy system at great cost to the common person, a system that said some are better, are superior to, and have more value than others. The British spread their class structure throughout the world and were intent on doing the same during the fur trade and the establishment of this colony. In 1833, the Red River population was slightly less than 2,000. The French and Métis and retired Orkneymen from the HBC, along with the European settlers, all dwelled in various quarters near the banks of the Red River below the Forks, the land at the confluence of the Red and Assiniboine Rivers. The book tells of the division of the various groups. Healy spent a lot of time talking with Harriet Cowan. She was the daughter of James Sinclair. Healy referred to her as Mrs. William Cowan, as was the way in the day, I realize. Harriet was in her 92nd year when Healy spoke to her. She was born Harriet Goldsmith Sinclair on July 9, 1832, on the east bank of the Red River, a few miles below what would become the city limits of Winnipeg. She was the daughter of James Sinclair and Elizabeth Bird. James Sinclair was the ninth child of Nahuay and William Sinclair. Healy eventually mentions Harriet's first name in the section pertaining to her life. He names Harriet's maternal grandfather, but makes no mention of Harriet's mother or her name. Harriet's mother, Elizabeth Bird, born 1806, was the daughter of James Curtis Bird, a retired chief factor, and Elizabeth Montour, an indigenous woman born circa 1789, according to the biographical sheet of the HBC. James Bird was born in England in 1773. Birds Hill Park in Winnipeg is named for James Bird. I am writing this at a time when my egalitarian hairs are standing on end, Considering the patriarchal power being flung at us with its full force these days, which does inform my reading of history. In two short generations, the life that Nahue lived, one of survival and hardship, of relying on skills learned as a child from her Cree ancestors, skills she taught her Arcadian husband and children, had been all but lost, replaced with relative comfort and a European way of life. Harriet tells Healy of her mother, whom Healy does not name. Elizabeth Bird witnessed men in war paint riding, quote, passed on their way from the plains to Fort Douglas before the Seven Oaks Massacre in 1816. Harriet made no distinction of the men and color of their skin. I will delve into the truth of this massacre at a later episode. Healy mentions Harriet's paternal grandfather, William Sinclair, naming him as chief factor at York Factory and governor of the district. William died 14 years before his granddaughter Harriet's birth. He did not hold the office of chief factor at York Factory, as Healy claims. Healy wrote that James Sinclair benefited from his father's good name and status with the HBC. There is truth in that, but more importantly was the benefit of the skill and survival derived of his mother and her Cree heritage. 
It was through her he acquired the survival skills to live safely in the wilderness, and as a result he had a deep connection with the wilderness all his life and was a free spirit. Further, William traveled a great deal in his service to the HBC, away from home for extended periods of time. As a young child, James spent more time with his mother than with his father. Her lessons to him would have shaped the man he became. James was educated in Orkney, returning to the Bay in 1827 at the age of 18, and still very much his mother's son. He wanted independence from the HBC and refused to be held hostage by it. This made him unpopular with Governor Simpson. James became a free trader, gaining a notable reputation. He married Elizabeth Byrd, had nine children, most of whom did not reach adulthood. Elizabeth died 17 years later in 1845. Healy wrote that James Sinclair had bound volumes of the illustrated London news shipped to Red River, sharing them with his daughter Harriet, and she, quote, learned a good deal about the old country, end quote. Those would not have been her words. England was not her old country. She had never been. Healy also wrote that Harriet's father agreed with Governor George Simpson, whom I might add was not a reputable man, in wanting to colonize the West, and how James made two expeditions with families from Red River to Oregon. He first led 23 families with all their belongings, including horses and cattle. James was finally able to move his family from Red River to Oregon with 14 other families in 1854, Harriet remained at Red River as she was married by that time. Nahaway never saw her son again. James died March 26, 1856, after a skirmish at the settlement at Cascades Portage. The Sinclair Pass in the now Kootenai National Park between the Columbia and Kootenai Rivers, northeast of what we call Radium Hot Springs, was named for James Sinclair. His crossing of the Canadian Plains through the fierce Blackfoot territory and the difficult terrain of the Rockies was unmatched by any other. I would guess that very few travelers who use the Sinclair Pass have any idea of who this man was, of his courageous and adventurous spirit given him by his mother. Harriet Sinclair shared many stories with James Healy. Her memory was sharp and clear. The words he chose to write showed little evidence of her Cree ancestry, though she would have had a close relationship with Nahue, her grandmother, who resided at Red River from 1824 until her death in 1857, living with James after his first wife Elizabeth Byrd died until his marriage to his second wife Mary Campbell. Harriet was a happy woman, had led a life, as she put it, a sheltered woman of Red River. I wonder what stories Nahue told her. Harriet was 25 years old when Nahue died. She would have spent considerable time with Nahue, but few stories recorded in Women of Red River include Nahue. I wonder how Nahue felt as she watched her grandchildren shift so easily away from her life. Next up will be the examination of the other written records of Canada's history. Hi hi, which means thank you in Cree. Hi hi for listening. Bye for now. <laughs>